the chemical manufacturers set out to discredit me with personal attacks. They said, hey, he's biologist turned activist, turned activist, a turn. You can't be a scientist and an activist. Theo Colburn is described by the New Yorker as the scientist who had popularized the theory that industrial chemicals could alter hormones. She told another scientist, a fellow whistleblower, don't go home the same way twice. That scientist is called Tyrone Hayes. He can be heard at the start of the podcast giving a TED talk about being a biologist and an activist. And in 2003, on a trip to Washington, D.C., he stayed at a different hotel each night. He was the subject of the 2014 New Yorker article titled Valuable Reputation. The exact value of the reputation in question is nearly $2 billion. Atrazine is a herbicide. It's cheap to produce and is used on half the corn in the United States. The Environmental Protection Agency found that without the herbicide atrazine, the national corn yield would suffer and fall by 6%, equating to nearly $2 billion. Tyrone Hayes was hired by Syngenta to conduct experiments on the herbicide atrazine, and his results were not favorable. Hayes ran a lab in the University of California, Berkeley, where he had completed his PhD in three and a half years. He subsequently joined the biology faculty. After his relationship with Syngenta broke down, he became suspicious. He stopped sharing his research with people he didn't trust. He made backup copies of his data and notes which he sent to his parents in sealed boxes. He told students in his lab to listen for a click on the phone. A click meant that someone was listening. It meant that they should hang up the phone immediately. When he realized people knew details about his schedule he hadn't shared with them, he became suspicious. He told his students to send misleading emails from his office computer when he wasn't there. You are listening to the UFO Hour and I'm Anastasia. In this inaugural episode, we are going to discuss whistleblowers, scientists, soldiers and heretics. We will look at the role of technology, be it cybersecurity or facial recognition software, because to discuss whistleblowers in the age of information is to ask what does privacy mean in a world where information is power and everything is information. I think when talking about whistleblowers, it's easy to get lost in the spectacle of it all. And there's certainly a conversation to be had about the whistleblower as a celebrity. Um, there's a conversation to be had about the way the media consumes stories of whistleblowers and how these people are very often elevated to celebrity and the conversation is re reduced to spectacle. You know, um, I think this offers an opportunity to talk about the role that spectacle plays in engendering political apathy and more generally the pace of the news cycle and how that shapes our relationship with these powerful institutions. Um, and maybe that's why I wanted to start with Tyrone Hayes as a case study, because Tyrone Hayes is a scientist and in a sense he, he became a whistleblower by accident. Um, and you could even say every whistleblower becomes a whistleblower by accident. The Tyrone Hayes saga begins in November 2000 when he ends his relationship with Syngenta. He however continues to study the herbicide atrazine on his own. He continues to publish his research linking this widely used herbicide to adverse health effects in amphibians. Because we all start out as aquatic in the amniotic fluid. And these chemicals that I study in my tadpoles can cross the placenta. In fact, we now know that you, that your children, will be exposed to over 300 synthetic chemicals before they leave the womb. And most of them we have no idea what the biological impact is. 
For atrazine, we do know from rats, which are a proxy for us, that if you give rats atrazine, an EPA lab showed those rats are more likely to have an abortion. Of those rats that don't have an abortion, the sons are born with prostate disease. Of those rats that don't abort, the daughters are born with impaired mammary development. That was Tyrone Hayes giving a TED talk about his research into atrazine. Um, Hayes went to Harvard on a scholarship in 1985 where he felt he didn't fit in. He's African-American, he stands five foot three, and he began dressing flamboyantly, um, I guess as a defense mechanism. And he's now 55 years old, he still has a youthfulness. In his TED talk he thanks his wife and his children. And he has this bravado and this zeal that I think with scholars and scientists, it's a way for them to sometimes endear themselves to the public. Um, they'll, you know, they use their enthusiasm um, for their scientific research. And sometimes that enthusiasm, it, it takes the place of ego. And it's a way for them to wear their intellect more lightly. Um, Tyrone Hayes soon joined a rarefied class of black tenured biology professors and he ran the most racially diverse lab in his department. Former students like Nigel Noriaga claimed that his lab offered a comfort zone for his students who didn't fit in with the culture at the institution. In his youth, Hayes also found a mentor and a biology professor. The power behind the Tyrone Hayes story, certainly in the New York article, is a feeling of ambiguity. It's like a movie with a will-they-won't-they they type of plot. And the whole time, we, the audience, are left wondering how much of Hayes' experience is characterized by paranoia and how much of it is real-life persecution. Um, even students in his lab and people he trusted in real life doubted to the extent which um, Hayes was, um, was being persecuted. And the measures he took were seen as, uh, as an over overreaction. And I think some people would even call him, or anyone in this situation, could be accused of being self-involved to think that a large corporation would come down on an individual. Regarding the vindication of Tyrone Hayes, uh, there are two things we can look at. We can look at uh, a, a statement that the CDC published, and we can also look at the lawsuit that Syngenta settled in 2012. So the CDC published a public health statement on atrazine in September 2003. If you're paying attention to the timeline, this is almost three years after Tyrone Hayes ended his relationship with Syngenta. And here are some highlights from the CDC public health statement. After atrazine is applied to soils, it will remain there for several days to several months. In rare situations, it may remain in soil for a few years. However, in most cases, atrazine will be broken down in the soil over a period of one growing season. In addition to being removed from the soil, atrazine is also taken up by the plants that grow there. And this uptake is the first step in killing weeds. Most people are not exposed to atrazine on a regular basis. People living near areas where atrazine is applied to crops may be exposed through contaminated drinking water. Atrazine has been found at about 20 Superfund sites in the United States. People living near those sites may be exposed to higher levels of atrazine. If you are a factory worker who works with atrazine, you may be exposed to higher amounts of atrazine. The government has estimated that approximately 1,000 people may be exposed to atrazine in this way. Atrazine has been found in water collected from many drinking wells in the Midwestern United States. Therefore, you may be able to reduce your risk of exposure to atrazine by ensuring that your water supply is free of atrazine or contains no measurable levels of atrazine. Atrazine has also been found in streams, rivers and lakes near fields where it has been applied. 
higher amounts have been found in these waterways in the spring and summer months. Therefore, you may wish not to swim in nor drink from these bodies of water. Children may be exposed to atrazine if they play in fields where atrazine has been applied or in streams receiving runoff from those fields. They should be encouraged not to play in these fields or bodies of water. Low amounts of atrazine have also been found in carpet and house dust in homes in the Midwest. However, very few children living in these homes have had any atrazine in their bodies. To prevent possible exposure of yourself or your children to atrazine, you may wish to vacuum floors and dust surfaces on a frequent basis, especially during the spring and summer months. Little information is available regarding the effect of atrazine in children. Maternal exposure to atrazine in drinking water has been associated with low fetal weight and heart, urinary and limb defects in humans. Atrazine has been shown to slow down the development of fetuses in animals and exposure to high levels of atrazine during pregnancy cause reduced survival of fetuses. It is unclear whether or at what level of exposure this might occur in humans. It is not known whether atrazine or its metabolites can be transferred from pregnant mother to a developing fetus through the placenta or from a nursing mother to her offspring through breast milk. The second part of the vindication of Tyrone Hayes came in uh, a lawsuit that Syngenta had settled. In 2012, Syngenta settled an eight-year-long lawsuit relating to its herbicide atrazine. However, the company admitted no liability as part of the settlement, which it agreed to in order to avoid business uncertainty and litigation expenses. The vindication part comes in 2013. So in June of 2013, unsealed documents were published in Environmental Health News in partnership with 100 reporters. The unsealed documents show that Syngenta's PR team had four goals, and the first was to discredit Tyrone Hayes. They hired a psychologist to write a report on Tyrone Hayes' weaknesses, his insecurities, and his sleep pattern. Uh, certainly, this is enough to information to convert even the edgiest skeptic. You know, I read some of those unsealed documents, and um, it was it was like something out of a movie. You know, it was um, this is an example of how very often uh, fact is stranger than fiction. And I always like to say there are conspiracy theories, uh, and there are conspiracies in practice that are you know happening in reality. You know, there's no nothing theoretical about this, um, and. Tyrone was paranoid, but he had a reason to be paranoid, essentially. The issue that arises now isn't whether Tyrone Hayes is vindicated, but whether these institutions have credibility in the first place, um, because a lot of these institutions failed Tyrone Hayes, and they failed the public. And I think it also shows, you know, just even beyond, like, the judiciary, and we, we spend a lot of time uh, scrutinising uh, the judicial process, um, how money and power... Uh, are not just barriers to gaining justice, but often influence uh, outcomes um, in, in legal cases. I think something we don't often scrutinize as much is the scientific process and um, how these scientific journals and scientific studies, you know, who is funding these studies and how does that um, skew the results and how those results are communicated to the public. Um, large corporations can fund research to say what they want it to say. And it may take a decade to counter misinformation. I, I think that there's probably a whole podcast episode we could do on misinformation and authority. Um, and whistleblowers would just be one small chapter of that. But I think what I've taken away from this story is that regardless of how much integrity that an individual scientist has, um, the scientific community collectively 
have to negotiate the same power dynamics that we all do within um, what some would call a capitalist state. In the New Yorker article, one of Hayes' students in his lab um, raised a concern about um, having corporate backing for his lab and how Syngenta was funding his lab initially, you know, before he cut ties with Syngenta, they were funding his lab. And his response was that, you know, this isn't going to um, mar the scientific process, this isn't going to mar our integrity. If anything, it allows us, um, it, it gives us more funding and we, we're going to have more um, equipment and I'm able to hire more um, students to work in the lab. Um, obviously this blew back in his face, but it's, it's really eerie to think about the fact that, you know, students very early on were questioning you know, and th these are students, so they were just coming into this institution. They, they probably were in a better position than anyone else to question um, the, the logics of, of, of these institutions. And ultimately, you know, Hayes was failed by a lot of these institutions, including the media. Um, so there is a Forbes um, article about Hayes that, you know, discredits him, talks negatively about him. Uh, they also call the New Yorker piece a puff piece. Um, I wouldn't call it a puff piece, but it was a very entertaining read, and it did put the story, um, a very urgent story that, you know, I think the public needs to hear, but it did put it in a very entertaining uh, format um, by, by focusing on Hayes as a character, as, a, um, as this flamboyant black man, you know, that's obviously, you know, very easy to discredit. He's very flamboyant, very funny. Um, I find that all of this, you know, endearing, but obviously some people, you know, would want their whistleblowers to be a little bit more straight-laced um, and boring. Um, there are also two Gorka articles detailing his emails, because um, Tyrone, he sent emails taunting Syngenta, and, you know, they emphasize the use of profanities and him quoting rap lyrics. But again, this is a matter of culture. You know, if you don't have the cultural literacy, um, you are not a black person. It's very easy to use that to mock him and to say that, you know, or maybe he's even unwell or he's not someone to be trusted. Um, whereas someone with the cultural literacy would understand, you know, he was being playful. Um, and, you know, this is just his sense of humor. I think it's interesting to look at Tyrone Hayes because the Syngenta lawsuit was eight year long. Um, and that, that if, if it was settled in 2012, then that means that, you know, it's been going on since the 2000s. And we know that the, the reach of the media uh, information was not as easy to, to get a hold of, uh, the media landscape was different, you know, uh, social media wasn't as ubiquitous. Um, and I think now in the next chapter of this U the UFO Hour, we will be discussing Snowden and Manning um, and the media landscape that they navigated as whistleblowers in the age of information. I think... The digital era and the options open up new possibilities for whistleblowing that we could never imagine. That was Jocelyn Raddock talking about whistleblowing and the digital tools that can now be used to hold these, um, I'm going to use the term, institutions of power accountable. Uh, Radek is an attorney specializing in human rights and national security. She is best known for defending journalists, whistleblowers, and hacktivists. She was one of the lawyers on the defense team of Edward Snowden. Snowden and Manning are, in a sense, the face of whistleblowers in the age of information, in part because of the stakes, the sense of information they shared, 
And I guess on a human level, these are stories of patriots and soldiers who have become disillusioned with institutions that they once served. And unlike Hayes and previous whistleblowers, they benefited from being part of the information age um, with its rapid pace of, you know, the news cycle and social media um, and the way that social media challenges the the monopoly that traditional media has often had. I think that the response to Snowden and Manning was like, a meteorite. You know, these stories had a long shelf life. They didn't just fizzle out. Uh, my name is Ed Snowden. I'm uh, 29 years old. I work for Booz Allen Hamilton as an infrastructure analyst for NSA uh, in Hawaii. What are some of the positions that you held previously within the intelligence community? Uh, I've been uh, a systems engineer, systems administrator, uh, senior advisor uh, for the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, solutions consultant, and a uh, telecommunications information systems officer. It's been a while since Snowden has been in the headlines, so I wanted to begin with a brief timeline as provided by NBC News. Snowden enlists on an Army Reserve for Special Forces training program in March of 2004. His reasoning for enlisting is idealistic. He wants to free people from oppression in Iraq. He is, however, discharged in September of 2004 due to a broken leg. Snowden then begins working as a security guard at the Center for Advanced Study of Language at the University of Maryland, which is reported to have a close relationship with the National Security Agency. In 2006, he is hired by the CIA as a technical-slash-IT expert and receives a top security clearance. Between 2007 and 2009, Snowden spends time in Geneva, Switzerland, where he is given a diplomatic position relating to IT and cybersecurity for the CIA. He had access to more classified documents, and he credits this time in his life for the shift in his politics. He later tells The Guardian that he became disillusioned about how my government functions and what its impact is in the world. I realized that I was part of something that was doing far more harm than good. Between late 2009 and March 2012 is when Snowden begins to rebel. Snowden's supervisor at the CIA placed him under critical assessment. He voiced the concern that Snowden had tried to break into classified computer files to which he was not authorized to have access. The New York Times reported this after he was identified as a leaker. Snowden subsequently leaves the CIA following the suspicion his supervisor raised and begins to work as an NSA contractor assigned by Dell. Over the span of several years, he works on assignments from the NSA and CIA for Dell. He switches between CIA and NSA assignments until March of 2012. In March of 2012, he moves to Hawaii to work with the NSA as an employee of Dell. In December of the same year, he reached out to Glenn Greenwald, a lawyer and columnist for The Guardian. In January of 2013, he reaches out to Laura Poitras, a documentary filmmaker who would go on to make the iconic documentary titled Citizen Four. Snowden then went back to working with the NSA in March of 2013. He later tells the South China Morning Post that he did this with the intention of gaining access to classified documents. Snowden arrives in Hong Kong in 20th of May 2013. Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald arrive in Hong Kong 2nd of June 2013 to meet the person behind the encrypted emails. On 5th of June 2013, The Guardian publishes their article concerning the documents provided by Snowden, and in August of that same year, Snowden is named as a leaker by The Guardian in an interview where he predicts he will become a political refugee. 
talk a little bit about how the American surveillance state actually functions. It, does it target the actions of Americans? Uh, NSA, in the intelligence community in general, uh, is focused on getting intelligence wherever it can, by any means possible. It believes on the grounds of sort of a self-certification that they serve the national interest. Uh, originally, we saw that uh, focus very narrowly tailored as foreign intelligence uh, gathered overseas. Now, increasingly, we see that it's happening domestically. And to do that, they, uh, the NSA specifically targets the communications of everyone. It ingests them by default. It collects them in its system and it filters them and it analyzes them and it measures them and it stores them for periods of time simply because that's the easiest, most efficient, and most valuable way to achieve these ends. So while they may uh, be intending to uh, target someone associated with a foreign government or someone that they suspect of terrorism, they're collecting your communications to do so. Uh, any analyst at any time can target anyone, uh, any selector anywhere. Where those uh, communications will be picked up depends on the range of the sensor networks and the authorities that that analyst is uh, empowered with. Not all analysts have the ability to target everything. But I, sitting at my desk, uh, certainly had the authorities to, to wiretap anyone from you or your accountant to a federal judge to even the president if I had a personal email. That was Edward Snowden talking to The Guardian, and he raises some really interesting points. Um, there are three points in particular that I want to discuss. The first being the dichotomy of state surveillance in the age of information. Snowden, and maybe even we the public, want a degree of transparency from our government. And the digital era has offered us tools and even you know, a cultural landscape where information uh, is easy to access and has um, this you know, unprecedented reach. Snowden states clearly in the interview that his motivation was to preserve or repair our trust in the state, or his, his trust in the state through accountability. Um, but there is a trade-off, and that trade-off is that the same tools that whistleblowers use um, to hold the, the state accountable are, can be used by the state um, to invade our privacy. And they have access to all this information. And when you compare this to Tyrone Hayes and that story about him sending... Uh, misleading emails from his office computer when he was traveling or having his students send misleading emails um, so that people could be, would be confused about his schedule. It's really interesting to compare that to the technological and cultural and legal landscape that Edward Snowden is navigating and how different, you know, how it's, it's a completely different world now. Um, because your office computer that has information about your schedule doesn't stay at your office. It's, it's in your pocket and it comes home with you. Ultimately, we want transparency and we think we can get it through whistleblowing. But those same tools are the, the reason why we live in a world where privacy is increasingly elusive. The second point I want to discuss is how Snowden, both Snowden and the interviewer, make a distinction between uh, surveillance programs that target citizens as opposed to foreign nationals. Um, and I think this reveals how much this is really a conversation about the citizen and each citizen and their relationship with the state, our trust in our government. Um, because you assume that your own government would not spy on you. After all, you know, you're on the same side. I think it also betrays a kind of innocence there because, you know, an assumption that the government just wouldn't spy on you is, is it's kind of innocent. Maybe in the aftermath of, you know, Edward Snowden and Manning now, 
you know, we're a little bit more cynical. But it, it's interesting um, to see how they're often, not just the interviews, but the articles that have been written about this, very often emphasise that it was citizens that were being spied on as opposed to foreign nationals. Um, and then my third point goes into that, you know, and ties this all up very neatly, because Snowden says that and this is the easiest way, you know, the information is collected automatically by the state. Um, he uses some really interesting language. He says um, it just ingests them by default. You know, it's very ominous. But what's really interesting about that is regardless of whether you are a foreign national, a citizen, regardless of how powerful you are, we all fall prey to the hyper, you know, we are all affected by the hyper surveillance, which again reiterates my point, which is that we are all making all of this progress with technology. um, But it's a question of are we ready for the consequences? Are we ready to address the problem of hyper surveillance? Um, When the issue is that, you know, because the technology exists, powerful people can and will use it to invade our privacy. And all of this is to say that technology is politically or can be politically morally neutral and that the same technology can be wielded in so many ways um, because there are so many variables at play. The first thing I would say is please consult a lawyer or a journalist or both before you do this on your own because the worst thing is to become an accidental whistleblower when you weren't meaning to do it. But I believe an entire new frontier has been opened up because of groups like WikiLeaks and because of things like Tor. And for example, the New Yorker magazine has created a drop box for people to give tips and leads and blow the whistle. These are relatively new in formation and they're in their infancy. So I don't know how well they work yet. I know in general, whether it is WikiLeaks or the Dropbox, those communications are more secure, I'm thinking, on the receiving end. I'm quite confident the WikiLeaks, they are secure on their receiving end. It is on the sending end where people might get caught and need to be careful. Um, But I really think right now, in terms of what Bradley Manning did and what Edward Snowden did, I... They are whistleblowers. A whistleblower is someone who reveals fraud, waste, abuse, illegality, or danger to public health and safety. Usually, these folks work for the government, or used to. You are listening to the UFO Hour, and I'm Anastasia. That was part one of the inaugural episode of my podcast. I will be uploading part two tomorrow. Thank you so much.